This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. My guest today is actor Viggo Mortensen. He was relatively unknown when he appeared in Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings trilogy. As the warrior King Aragorn, Mortensen brought an earthy realism to a fantasy world filled with elves and wizards. The overwhelmingly successful films changed the course of Mortensen's career, and he shot to global stardom. His latest film is about a very different kind of fantasy. Captain Fantastic is the story of a father trying to raise his six children outside of conventionality, and what happens when that fantasy collapses. Mortensen himself was raised on three different continents, and he says his own imagination was formed at an early age. Maybe because when that happens to you, when you're uprooted a lot, you, your fantasy world uh, becomes a little more intense. You know, you replace the friends that you have to say goodbye to all the time with maybe imaginary friends. And you, and you or moved a lot when you were young. Yeah, I did. I mean, the kids in the movie are, they're isolated from other people, that's for sure. They're, you know... As you see in the beginning, they're in the middle of the forest. The youngest of them have never met other people, and they're used to just being very self-sufficient. But yeah, when I was when I was a kid, we did move around a lot, and I grew up in a sort of multicultural environment. And maybe that. What did your dad do? He was uh, well, he's uh, raised on a farm. He's Danish and um, farm boy, sort of self-made. He re- he left home during high school. He didn't even finish high school. But then he uh, he met my mom, who's from the U.S., who was working in Norway, 
and fell in love and got married and he moved here and he decided, well, I'm going to be a businessman. And so he taught himself English and somehow got himself into a business school here and did four years worth of studying, two years, you know, very driven while my mom was working and supporting himself. And, uh, and then uh, when I was born in 1958 in, in New York, we moved to South America because that's where uh, he got a job. And, and do you have a lot of vivid memories of growing up down there, living down there? Yeah, yeah. When I was little, we, we lived in urban settings in Buenos Aires and also in the, in the country. My dad, just like his dad had taught him when I was very young, my brothers and I uh, all went camping with him a lot, went to wild places, hunting, fishing, all that. So those things were not entirely unfamiliar. How many brothers do you have? I have two. Oh, and are they in the business as well? No, they're, uh, they studied geology, so yeah, <laughs> quite different. Although they're they're good, uh, they're musicians, and I would have felt the youngest one. He was sort of very good mimic, and um, you know, very gifted in that way. And I, you know, if you would have guessed when we were little boys, you if one of them was going to be an actor, it probably would have been him, not me. Right. Yeah. What would they have guessed you would have been? A horse trainer? I don't, maybe. No, <laughs> someone who was, uh, spent a lot of time by himself, probably. I was. I mean, I had friends, not a lot of them. I had a couple good friends, and then maybe because of this itinerant thing. But I, I didn't really, uh, I wasn't very social, I guess, and I was kind of shy about I mean, I would have never imagined trying out for a play or a musical. So how did that happen? How did someone who, I mean, because you seem so private and so... Um, well, actually, I did have one experience. I think it was junior high or something. Once we moved to the United States, uh, a friend of mine was really into to the idea of becoming an actor, and he loved musicals, and he was just really... He knew everything about the theater in New York. And he said, you got to try it for this play. It's great. It's, it's called... I think it was Hello, Dolly. And he goes, you got to try out for this. And I said, what? No, I can't. Can you imagine me trying out for Hello, Dolly? Viggo Mortensen's know. debut is Hello, Dolly. Yeah, right? And so he's, I go, well, what do I got to do? He says, you go there and you go on the stage and, you know, in the auditorium and then you, you just... They'll give you something to read or you bring something to read. I don't remember how it was. In any case... I went out very unwillingly out on the stage, and there's this, you know, the theater teacher and whoever else was there. And uh, I read the first paragraph from David Copperfield, or tried to, but every three words they'd say, louder, louder, and I just would shrink and shrink, and, shrink, and I finally just closed the book and ran off. And that was my only foray, other than I think when I was in Argentina when I was like six, they put me in a play as George and the Dragon. And I was the ass end of the dragon. It was just a gray suit, <laughs> felt or it's something. It's Hello Dolly or the ass end of the dragon. <laughs> That's it. It sounds like my career. That's our... <laughs> so how does it begin for you, meaning the person who is shy and private and likes to spend time with himself, how does he cross that divide? Well, <clears throat> at, a, I guess, a relatively late age, uh, 21, 22, something like that. Where were you then? I was in... I was in Denmark. Well, I have a lot of family, a lot of cousins and stuff, and I, I had a, a girl that I liked there, and I had different jobs, you know, pretty, you know, like manual labor kind of jobs, factory, dock worker. Best one was selling flowers on the street. That was nice. Um, and uh, I always liked to see movies. My mom, when I was little, used to take me to pretty grown-up movies. You know, I remember Dr. Zhivago or to see... 
you know, these long movies with intermissions. Ben-Hur, Lawrence of Arabia. And I, I loved that. I loved the experience of seeing the movies with her and through her and talking with her in the intermission. And, of course, you'd also get, maybe get a piece of chocolate in the intermission. That was not bad. And, um, but the whole, she really was into that. And had she been, you know, she was typical mom from our parents' generation, meaning that <clears throat> she's the one you saw all the time and, and your dad would leave early and come home late. And he, you might see him at dinner, but more maybe likely, not. maybe not. Maybe not even to be tucked in. And then, but you'd see him on the weekend. Are they both still alive? Uh, my dad is. Yeah, my mom passed away last year. Sorry. And, You're uh, close with her. Very, yeah, yeah. Where was she? At the end, you mean? Yeah. In back where she was from, in she, Watertown, New York. So made the circle no, 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 it's, no, it's funny you say that. You said Watertown. Yeah. Because my family, my mother's family is from Syracuse. Oh, and really? we spent a lot of time up in uh, Pulaski, Watertown, Lake Ontario, Selkirk really? Shores, Sandy Pond. My whole childhood was in that really? area. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful area. Anyway, yeah. And so. So you wouldn't see your dad? And I wouldn't see my mom. dad so much, but except did you, for... Did your mother take the other boys to the movies, too, or just you? I mean, later we all went with her sometimes, but there was, I don't know, I, I had a special connection with the movies through my mom. I, I'm not saying more than my brothers, you'd have to ask them, but I, that's my recollection. I mean, I think what I was saying about her generation is, had she not been a at-home mom, I think she would have probably tried acting, because she was... She was outgoing and very beautiful, and and she knew and cared a lot about uh, movies. And uh, when I first started out, you know, I'd call her. So, what have you been doing? Uh, what do you What do you try out for this week? And I'd say, Well, this thing. Uh, who's, who wrote the script? I, I don't know. I just they just gave me four pages. It's just I got like three lines. So what are you gonna? How are you gonna play it? I go. I don't even have the part yet. I gotta go in. I got. You know, <laughs> who's the director? You know, who's in it? I go. You gonna wear a tie or no tie? You right. wear a tie. Yeah. You know, are you gonna limp? <laughs> She's on it. A limp? <laughs> mustache? Fake mustache? What do you, you know, whatever. All this stuff. Maybe he has a patch on his eye. And if I'd say, well, I think the director's name is, and I would say, oh yeah, yeah, he's not very good, but you never know. Is the part good? You know, and like, and I just, and I stopped sort of telling her so much. Unless I had the part, then we could talk. But because it was very irritating. Now, of course, I realize she really cares. One of the most enjoyable experiences I've had in recent years in, in the movie business was there was one year. It's like this, as you know, it's a crapshoot. The thing with awards and nominations. And then when you're nominated, well, this year they got it right. This year it's legitimate. <laughs> yeah. No, I knew it was kind of. They figured it out finally. Yeah, there was one year where I got nominated for all the sort of the SAG and the Golden Globes and the Oscars and all those in one. And uh, so I said to my mom, do you want to go to, I think there was, a, there was a strike, so the Golden Globes were canceled. There was no ceremony. But the SAG Awards were coming up. I said, that could be nice. I think it's tables and it's like more relaxed. Do you want to go, Mom? Sure, of course. I was waiting. I thought you'd never ask. I said, well, I've never been nominated before. She goes, okay, well, yes, I'll go. Um, I will, I will, I'm going to get a new uh, dress or a pantsuit or something. I said, well, whatever you want. Do you want some help? No, 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 no. That's something. That's my area. And I said, fine. So she got her thing. She flew down. At that point, she was living in, in northern Idaho where I was living. She'd moved there and lived near my brother and long story. But So she came down to Los Angeles. I picked her up at the airport. <clears throat> we came the day before and 
We hung out and talked. She had lots of questions about who's going to be there. I don't know, Mom. And, and then who else is nominated? And, and then I told her who's nominated. She goes, oh, he did that and he did that. She was like, encyclopedia. And then we go to the thing. And as you know, there's this red carpet thing. I said, well, I got to talk to these journalists on the way in. And then if you don't mind, no, I'll just stand over here and watch and see how you do. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so it was kind of, I knew she was I behind me. <laughs> so she watches. And... Uh, <clears throat> We walk in, and then she's muttering, oh, you did okay, except for that one lady. You seemed like you didn't like her. I said, mm, well, the questions were kind of dumb. It doesn't matter. you got to be polite to all of them. I'm like, yeah, okay. So we sit down, and it is tables, and uh, and she immediately goes, oh, that's – and all the older actors and people that I didn't know who they were, she knew exactly who they were. He was in this, and he was in that. In 1948, everything. And they, oh, and that's John Travolta. I go, yes, it is. And he goes, excuse me. And she gets up and she goes and just starts talking to him. And she did that all night. It was it was great. It was a, it was a fantasy. Yeah, I loved it. And she loved it. And she, she had a really good time. And uh, they asked, I had been asked, I'd never done this, to present one of the awards at night, which is a nerve-wracking thing. I was like, I would rather just learn it. Said, no, you should read the thing. So just, I don't know what it was. Best Supporting Actress, I think. And... Um, yeah, and there was a sort of gentle critique of my delivery when I came back to the table. You know, it's just like that kind of night. But I laughed a lot. So it was wonderful. And I wish I wish I had, had been nominated before that just so that I could have taken my mom to she all of them. She could have enjoyed it. It would have been wonderful. I took my mom to quite a few premieres. She liked that. and uh, Or either took her or she attended, you know. Uh, sometimes ones I wasn't, you know, like if I couldn't be at the one in New York City, she would come down to Syracuse and... But uh, there was one that was really fun. It was a, I did a movie called Hidalgo. Which is, I love that movie. It's a Disney movie. <laughs> I and, love that. <laughs> and it was and Omar Sharif is in it. And of course, when she took me when I was little to see Doctor Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia, and so she, I mean, she had a, I think she had a crush on him like back then, and um, maybe her whole life. I don't know. And she came with my stepdad. You, know, you look a little like Omar Sharif. <laughs> it's funny you should say that. At this time of day. You kind of look like him a little bit. It's weird. Anyway. <laughs> so in the morning, uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> she, uh, she came with my stepdad, and uh, it was kind of a crazy premiere in L.A. I actually came down the red carpet on the horse. Uh, it was raining. They were like, "Don't, don't gallop, because if you slide under a bus and, and the horse get They're hurt, good. and and if you get hurt, and they added sort of as a PS, um, that would be terrible for us and you know the insurance. I don't know. I don't know. So don't worry, I'll just trot in. So I did, and the photographers were kind of shocked, and I rode up and right up to them, and and they started asking questions. I said, I don't know, I ask him, and it was kind of just silly like that. And my mom's there, you know, my stepdad, beaming, and uh, <clears throat> I get off the horse and. I walk over there and then I spot Omar. And I go, look, Mom. And she goes, that's him. And I said, well, you, you want to meet him? No, no, no. I go, yeah, come on. And I had told Omar that my mom really was into him, you know, when we were shooting the thing. <laughs> and he just, like, put on the yeah. suave gentleman. He was suddenly looked like they Omar from that. 1963. And he comes over and he takes her hand so gently, just never removing his eyes from hers, and kissed her hand so slowly. She was like beet red. And my stepdad, I thought he was going to knife him. I mean, he was so upset. I mean, he didn't say anything, but he was just like, mm -hmm. I thought he's going to have a coronary. 
And uh, that was like a highlight. She was just beaming. The rest of the night, it was like she'd been given some kind of, you know, drug or something. I had the same thing with my sister. I was doing this movie, The Edge, with Tony Hopkins, and we were in the Canadian wilderness. Tony's one about it with the bear. With the bear in the woods. It was the best experience I've ever had making a film because... I worshipped Tony. I was just, I, the dream of working with Tony, and I thought, oh, God, what if I ever had that chance? Yeah. I just loved him, and here I was making this film, and my sister, my older sister, who at the time was married, has six children. You know, she's a pretty solid citizen. She comes up to Canada to see me. Uh, Tony's laying on an air mattress because he'd hurt his back, and and right soon after this, he was going to shut down for two weeks for him to have back surgery, where, like, go in your neck and fix his... Uh, mm. his uh, bones and everything and uh, he's lying there reading the, the paper and my sister walks up and I go Tony um, I'd like you to meet my sister Beth and Tony stands up fluffs his clothes and then right at, like a movie he like just looks up and makes eye contact with her and says Elizabeth what a great pleasure to meet you <laughs> and takes her hand and does the same exact Kisses thing the it. slow kiss on the hand and I, my sister turned red she started like mm. trembling a little bit because she worshipped Tony and I thought these guys just they got it man they know exactly she walks what away and he's done for the day right he's like <laughs> totally killed himself doing that now for you um, you were going to give me the, the where you crossed that line and the, and the very quiet yeah. private kid goes into the business yeah 22 started, years old I started I guess I started looking I mean I'd seen some on TV but I hadn't really seen many I mean in Argentina I'd seen Argentine movies because that's what you had down there mostly American movies like it happens everywhere in the world but but I'd see stuff in, in Argentina I mean I thought cartoons on TV were from there because they were dubbed and then I got here when I was 11 and I'm like looking at Yogi Bear and, you know, Speed Racer and so on. Oh, these are not Argentine. These are actually... Gigantor. Yeah, even the Batman TV show, you know, with Adam West and all that, I thought. You are the same age. It's the same cartoon. Yeah, it's like, this is it's all in English. What's wrong? You know, and... Uh, but I hadn't been exposed to, let's say, movies from other countries and, and from the 40s, 50s, certainly not silent movies. And all of a sudden, I started watching lots of... Uh, it was in Denmark... Uh, it was a time where I was spending time in England and Denmark and different jobs. And and I started going to revival movie houses where you'd see a couple different movies a day if you wanted to. And I started seeing, you know, movies by Ozu and Brisson and Pasolini and Dreyer and before that. And it was an eye-opener. And I, at some point I made the transition from being entertained or not, you know, going for for just to enjoy myself, to wondering... What it was, what, what the trick was. I mean, how do they do that? How do you? How is it that I relate to them, and then suddenly I'm crying? I'm sitting in a movie theater crying, or that I walk out of the movie theater, and I'm shocked that I'm in Copenhagen, or that I'm in a city and it's daytime. I'm not, you know, on the Mongolian plains yeah. or something. You're not on the raft in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I was curious about how is that done. And and not long after that, I moved uh, to Manhattan. From Denmark? Yeah. There was a, a girl I was going out with at the time. She went back here, and I followed her. And uh, that didn't work out, but I got here. I was with her for a while, and I was curious about the, the acting thing. I wanted to try it just to see, you know. How, how do does, you do? How does it work? So I, I, got, I got a phone book. I looked at the yellow pages. Oh, well, you got to go to a book, theater yeah. and try out for the play. But what theater, right? So I'm leafing through, and I find this thing that says Actors Repertory Theater. 
which was a really a workshop. It was Warren Robertson as a teacher, right? And so I love actors' repertory theater. That sounds good. I know repertory means could, they could be doing several plays, and maybe if I get in the first one, then I, I do okay. I could be in other plays. That, that's probably the play. So I call them, I, and they go, actors' repertory theater. You know, and I go, well, how, do you, how do you try out for the play? And they go, what play? And I go, <clears throat> well, you know, you, are there auditions? Sure, you can come down. Uh, 8.15 Monday, you can come down. Uh, you might want to get here a few minutes early just to sign in. I go, okay, what do I do? Bring two pieces. I'm like, two pieces of what? And they said, two texts, you know. Oh, text. And uh, like, you know, I go to, to, to act. And they go, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had no idea what that meant. So at the time I was reading a collection of short Your stories. Your career relies on the patience of this woman on that phone, boy. <laughs> exactly. She was very kind to you. <laughs> yes. Isaac Dina said, Karen Blixen, the Danish writer, I was reading some short stories. There's one in which... Jack the Ripper figures, and there's some dialogue. So I sort of cobbled together the dialogue from the short story and made a little monologue out of that. And then I found an Irish uh, song, or there was an Irish song I liked, old Irish song. So I came in and I did this weird Jack the Ripper monologue <laughs> and, and sang this song. And they just sat there for a while, looked at each other, and they said, we'll get back to you. And I go, that's it? They go, yep. Next, you know, like that. So I, I, I went, uh, went back home and I thought, well, I don't know if that went well or not. And the next day they called and they said, you can come in next Wednesday. I go, what's the play? And they go, there is no play. Just come in next Wednesday. It turned out it was a theater workshop where you, you know, scene study and, and acting exercises. It was, it was Warren Robertson had uh, his, his approach was kind of a combination of Sandy Meisner and actor studio, you know, sense memory and scene study. And Did you like it right away? I did like it. Well, the, the, the main thing was that he encouraged me. Had he not... Warren. Yes. Uh, had he not said, no, there's something... I mean, I was probably really doing weird stuff. Uh, you know, he would say, you're just too fidgety. You're all over the place. I want you to sit on your hands and do all that now without moving around so much. And he was just... I, don't, I think it was probably very crude, but he saw something and he sort of eventually recommended me to go meet an agent and stuff and if he hadn't encouraged me it might have been just one more thing i tried i'm not sure but uh and i certainly i mean i got lucky right away once i went out for auditions in terms of getting to down to the last two guys for parts but i did that about 30 times and i never would get it and i was always shocked i was like well i did my best why don't I, you know but something about it maybe whatever my mom had inculcated or put into me uh, or maybe just some voice inside you that told you you, you need to find out. Yeah, you need to find stay out. with it. I still was like, yeah. I like the idea of it? telling stories in the movies. I want to do it. So I just stuck with it and eventually got little parts. It's probably for me, because I'm a slow learner um, in a way. I mean, once I learn something, I'm, I'm not going to forget it. But uh, the process of auditioning many times and seeing how people shoot stuff and how, you know, tests, screen tests, all kinds of stuff. And then getting small parts, <clears throat> doing a little theater, a little TV, and small parts in movies. I really learned how process works. I got you know a couple good parts, very small, like one scene parts. One with Woody Allen, Purple Rose of Cairo. One with Jonathan Demme, Swing Shift. Both of those were cut out of the movies. 
to my surprise and my family's <laughs> when I told them next Friday I'm in the movie I'm and they're like the what movie. are you doing in New York I'm City? in the movie but I'm not in the movie yeah my name's nowhere yeah I, I promise I made the scene with Woody yeah so I was in Search for Tomorrow which was the, too, yeah. the oldest which sure. one did you do I did the doctors before they got the, but Search Edge we always, always called them by one word when I was on Search, search. search Edge Days Search was a very old one and I went in they put me in this white paramedic kind of outfit <laughs> And they said, you guys are going to, when it's time, we'll practice just before because it's a narrow door and you put the actress on the f- stretcher, then you, you can't make like a full turn with a stretcher and all that. Just have that in mind. I'm like, okay, okay. And then it was like, hurry up and wait. So I was down there in the little cubicle that they put me in in my white outfit and my hair sort of slicked back a little bit and uh, I fell asleep. And all of a sudden, the bell's ringing. Like, Come on, Morton, where's Mortensen? And, and then I, we had to shoot. I didn't get to rehearse. I didn't know what was going on. So the guy goes, well, you take the back end, always the ass end, of the stretcher and um, just follow where I go. Okay? I go, fine, fine. I'm like sort of half asleep. And um, backing up, I, I hit the set and the wall. It was, it was just <laughs> terrible. I didn't get that call back to that one. But Search for Tomorrow, I had a good run. I was on it for a few months and... Played a smuggler. It's kind of a mysterious guy. Was, I never find out what I use smuggling. I would ask, and it's like too many questions, Morton. What am I smuggling? No, it's not. It's contraband. I go. Well, what? What is the? Is it drugs? Not important. Yeah. You're just smuggling. The main thing is you don't tell anybody. I said I won't. <laughs> and uh, they finally, I think, got tired of my questions a few months in because I said, well, why is this? And if I'm going to, cl- you know, I had I was in the hospital at one point. And then I did the thing where you tie the sheets together and climb out the window. And uh, I don't know, I asked questions about where did all these sheets come from? I mean, it's a lie. It's a lie. <laughs> I'm going to need Mar- about 11 or 12 <laughs> sheets to pull this off. You know, a, this knot is not strong enough. On the wall, it says we're on the ninth floor. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean exactly. am, I, am I the only one who sees that? Exactly. I said, these knots are not strong enough. This is, would never hold. You know, and they're like, Lawrence, just throw it out the window and yeah. jump out. Okay. Fling and, yourself out the window. So after so many questions, one day I was informed. It's the end for you uh, on Wednesday. I said, the end? The end what? The end of your employment here. But it's going to be a great scene. And it was a silly scene. It was a bar, and there was a girl that hit me with a you know, breakable glass, a pitcher of beer in the forehead. And I fall out of shot. And that was it. And that was it for Vigo Mortensen's soap opera career. Coming up, his film career explodes. Take a listen to the Here's the Thing archives. I talk with actresses like Debbie Reynolds, who remembers living in Hollywood during the golden era. Right across the street was Jimmy Stewart and Lucille Ball, and everybody was on that one street. It was like, let's have a party every night. Listen to the full conversation at heresthething.org. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. 
So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you, something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Vigo Mortensen isn't just an award-winning actor. He's also an avid writer, artist, and publisher. He speaks fluent English, Danish, Spanish, and French, but his first movie offer was a one-day role as an Amish farmer speaking German in Peter Weir's 1985 film Witness. He wasn't sure if he should take it on the very day he was offered the role in Witness... That same day, I was offered a part in uh, a Shakespeare in the Park production. And I said to my representative, well, obviously, do the play. I mean, I can work all summer and learn stuff. He goes, mm, not so fast. He said, uh, you know, for an actor living in New York and, you know, in the early 80s, it wasn't even now. But especially then, you don't get that. It's not like you have that many shots of being in movies. Um, and you're certainly not going to be offered work by Peter Weir very often. So take advantage. You can always do a play. You're in New York. Um, so I recommend you do that, even if it's only the one day. So I go down. I take the train down to to uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I do my first day's work. And as luck would, and it was very, it was fun. It was a beautiful place. And uh, at lunch, Peter Weir comes over and says, "You know, you have a vague resemblance. I'm thinking." 
well, what are you doing tomorrow? I go, I'm going, taking the train back to New York. He goes, well, are you doing anything this summer, the rest of the summer? I go, not now. And he says, uh, well, if you wouldn't mind staying, you know, for a few weeks, maybe more, um, I think I'm going to give Alexander Goodenough, the Amish suitor of Kelly McGillis, Harrison Ford's rival for, for her affections in the story, we're going to give him a younger brother, and, and uh, you just tag along, and the scenes he's in, you're just watching this rivalry. Uh, you're the audience's eyes, I guess, and we'll figure it out. Uh, okay? And I go, sure. So that was a good break, and it was very professional. They always finished on time. Uh, the weather was nice, but the cinematographer was brilliant, John Seale. The actors were prepared, and the director, not, nobody yelled. It was fun. Anybody could go to watch the, the rushes, the dailies. Um, so it was misleading in its... It was misleading because everybody was professional was and behaved well and kind to each other, and they did good work, and they finished on time, and it was not stressful. So uh, I don't know about your experience, but in my experience, that's very unusual. Right. A very famous actor, I don't want to speak about anybody you know, yeah. without their permission, but uh, told me that he did a film that was very tough that way. And the director was very, very, you know, just luxuriating in 35 and 40 takes without any real mm -hmm. direction, you know, without any real purpose and kind of abusive to some of the other cast, at the very least psychologically, in the way he would say things and do things. And it was, and it was all, uh, um, you know, not at all what he was used to or preferred. And so he just went up to the guy and... and and rather than get angry, he just really said it like as a plea. He said, you know, he said I just can't work like this. Mm -hmm. And if you want me to do what I do, this situation's got to change. Yeah. I like to do six or eight takes. You like to do 30 takes, 35 takes. He said, I, I don't want to work that way. So he said, let's, I'm going to go and home. And you guys think about and... it. Right, and cut out this, you know, kind of dressing everybody down in front of the crew and crew yeah. members. He said, when you want to speak to somebody, you give them their notes privately. Don't yeah. do it and embarrass them. Right. So the point is that the actor said to the director, you, you guys think about it. And he goes, I'm going to go home. And then tomorrow, if I come back, if you want me to come back, I'm going to come back knowing that it's different. And if I don't come back, you're going to get another actor to play this part who's going to put up with what I'm putting up with now that I don't want to put up with anymore. He just said it really calmly. And what happened? And when they, uh, the guy changed and just, uh, you know, was, everybody was a little bit more. There were, there were times you could see the guy was struggling. Yeah. He, he didn't course, change his nature. Had the power, had the position or the size role that he could do that yeah. if you're playing a bit part it's yeah. like you're done you're out yeah. you know I think the main thing the most important thing to be apart from just listening uh, in general that's good in life too but for an actor be flexible you know once you realize that there's all kinds of ways of making movies good and bad pleasant and unpleasant um, that doesn't mean you can't do your job. Sometimes it's more difficult than others, but the best thing is to be... There's different ways. Some people like to rehearse, some people don't. Some actors come in, and some of them are very good, award-winning actors that shall not be named, but they, they, will, they can prepare technically, let's say, in front of a mirror or whatever they do. They know how they're going to... The, the, the tone there's a of thing every they do. line. They know at what moment in the scene they're going to cry or seem to or laugh. Or, it's all... There's nothing wrong with it, um, but that means that you're adapting to them, you know. I mean, I've tried, but it doesn't, you know, just for the hell of it going, blah, blah, blah. and there's like, they're just impassive, because they know when the camera's on them, it doesn't matter what the hell you're doing. If you're working that way, it's, this is what I'm delivering, you guys adjust to me. That can work, and that person can do a great job. It's just not as much fun, because there isn't, the unknown there isn't you're not playing together it's not a two-way street 
and um, that works. Uh, so when you work with someone like that, well, you just deal with it. If you get resentful, then you're out of your game. It's like someone trying to psych you out on the basketball court or, you know, or something. You can't. If you let that happen, you're you're not going to play well. But what's a movie you did that's the opposite where everybody really, really did play off it and was very crackling and very alive with? I've been lucky. I've been in several. I would say Captain Fantastic, this movie that's just come out. Um, that was a great experience. The director was calm. That was very much like Peter Weir or like Cronenberg where everything's done. Everybody's well prepared. Everybody's polite to each other. The director has a good sense of humor. Um... They're intelligent enough to know that it's good to do everything possible to give the actors the idea. It's a lie, basically, but to give the actors the idea that there's, especially when you're working with children in this movie, you have six kids, that there's you have all the time in the world. It's just fun. It's just there's no pressure. And inside, the director's like freaking out as the sun's going down. And you're on an independent movie of limited budget, limited schedule. How many schedule. days did you shoot? It was 30-something days, 30... That's not too bad 30, in the modern That's world. not bad, but when you look at Captain yeah. Fantastic, we had a lot very of changes ambitious. of locations. Yeah, I saw that. And all these kids. I watched kids. that very carefully. And yeah. some of the kids are... Um, I mean, the kids have limited work hours, five, six hours for the youngest. And It's a longer breaks. movie queue in, in indie terms. Everybody tries to get, kind of wrap, wrap it up in an hour and 30 now, you know what I mean? Exactly. This one ran yeah. a little longer than that, yeah. but an hour 50. Exactly. And um, so that was a good experience. And, I mean, he... He's the captain. He or she uh, runs the show, and they, their example is what what guides everyone else. Catherine Hahn, Steve Zahn, very good actors. Um, Frank Langella and Dowd. I mean, everybody. And it was a great group of people, and I think Matt selected people who would work that way. I was so hoping that there would be an earthquake and a beam would come down and crush Langella's character. I hated him so much in the movie. Yeah, but at the end, you kind of realize, <laughs> oh, he's got a point, you know? He's not all wrong. I mean, that's he's got what, his point, yeah. Yeah, one of the, I mean, one of the things I like about the, the movie is that it, it surprises you. It subverts your expectations. And it, just like when I was reading the script, I thought, wow, this is good. And I had my pencil because I knew the director wanted to meet me, so I wanted to make my notes, so... You know, and I didn't make any notes. I just started reading, and the first ten, fifteen pages, I thought, okay, I know where this, what this is. It's a kind of a subgenre. It's a, I guess, a liberal utopian fantasy story where these are our, our heroes are these left wing, off the grid people, and their obstacles will be conservative people, conservative ideas. And we'll go with them through thick and thin and see how that works. It'll probably be funny. And convention will be there, right? And um, and then I realize it's not that. And you go from thinking, well, I was the best dad in the world. I feel like a lazy bum, you know, watching this family. <laughs> They're so driven to, you know, per, to, to, to achieve uh, physical and intellectual excellence every second of the day. It's an incredibly devoted father to thinking he's a maniac. He's a menace to his children. He's a danger to yeah. society. Right. And he's, you know, the very rigidity that he's so against, he's engaging in it inadvertently maybe by being isolating them and being so rigorous. And then the characters that you think are going to be, you know, like Frank Langella's character and his wife and Dowd, you think they're going to be just bad and sort of one note. And and in reality, they they have a point. They and his children circumstances lead the character that I play to, to realize I'm on the wrong path. And it's it's devastating. When you as a parent do what he does 
if you, if you give 100% of your time and energy, you do everything to, to help, you know, curate the lives of your, your children, to give them the best possible start, you, you're sacrificing everything. And your first impulse is to feel like it's all wrong. I'm an idiot and I quit. And, and then he makes an adjustment. And as an audience, I like those stories. Just reading it, I thought, this is really good. I was really surprised. I closed the script and thought, wow, that's amazing. I made a single note. I uh, went to meet Matt Ross, the writer-director, for a cup of coffee, which lasted like four and a half hours. We were talking about being dad. Always a good sign. Everything, you know, politics. And you everything. are a dad. Yeah. You have a? 28-year-old son. Son. Where is he? He's in Los Angeles. What's he do? He's a musician. He's a writer. Uh, and he also works uh, part-time at Percival Press, a company, I a publishing house I have. That you have? Yeah. Oh, cool. You know, when I saw the film, it just reminded me that I have a daughter who's going to be 21 in October, and mm. um, and I was not involved in raising her as much as I'd like to because mm. I was divorced and everything, and it was a little complicated. But um, And when I watched the film, I realized that, well, here's a guy that really wants to raise his kids mm. himself. And what I realized watching you is that yeah, we don't raise our children. You know, we try. We really try. Mm -hmm. We try so hard to superimpose our sensibilities. And here's a guy who he really wants to be their father in the sense that he's going to determine what gets put into the mix and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And in the world we live in now, especially now, I mean, right now, yeah. that's impossible. I mean, we, we, how much we actually raise our children is almost ridiculously small. Because now. of technology. Because of the, life, well, the world. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the Media. thing I got from the story, too, when I got from the script is that it's aspirational, that really it's basically to be the perfect parent is impossible. And, I, and the story isn't showing you something to make you think, well, you should be there 100% of the time. It's just whether you're engaged or not. And to know that by taking the risk of trying hard, you're going to make mistakes. And then the most important thing is, is hopefully realizing that and doing something about it and making adjustments. You know, Being a good dad isn't a static thing. Having a good marriage isn't a static thing. Neither is a democracy. Neither is a friendship. You know, tomorrow morning you got to sort of start over. Not over, but continue the process and make adjustments. And if you don't, Prepare it is... Prepare change. Yeah, it's a game that moves as you play, and if you don't move, you can't play very well. So scripts for you, how do scripts get to you? Was there a mechanism? I think people would be fascinated to know someone who has made as many successful films, highly successful films as you've had, you're very admired by everybody in the business and you must get inundated with scripts. And is there a filter? Like, how do you get a script and say, the, the one you open and the one you read, how does it arrive at your home? <clears throat> well, in that regard, I don't like filters at all. And my representative has always known that. So I said, I'll read, I will read everything and anything. And don't censor, don't, just send it and read whatever you want to. Um, I don't care, but I'm going to decide if I want to do it or not. And Sometimes you read 20, 30 pages and go, oh, this is not You there. know that, right. yeah, most, I mean, I think it's been since movies began as an art form, 95% or, or more of thing, the scripts that are written are not original, or if they start well, or maybe there's an okay concept, it's just the structure. It just doesn't work. It's And most of them are really poorly written, not very good ideas. So, but it does take longer to just to look at everything. And so that's the conventional way they come through, you know, an agent sometimes. 
But a lot of times people will hand me stuff on the street uh, or through a family member. Or friend. I mean, you know, you've probably, you know, you've, somebody says, well, would you look at this? Or you're going to... I try to avoid it if I can. I know, you're going to open opening <laughs> right. of a movie and you're right. doing an interview and suddenly it goes, here! And you yeah. handed a package and you're like, well... I will look at them and, and I will answer, but it's also like with the publishing house I have. You know, I've announced that we're not taking unsolicited submissions for the... For, for the foreseeable future, uh, we have enough projects in the hopper to work on. Why did you set up a publishing house? I like books, uh, and I like artists, I like writers, and there were certain people that I thought ought to be published. After Lord of the Rings, for me and for everyone else, all of a sudden there was this new, I had more options as an actor suddenly. Uh, I mean, people have the mistaken impression that as an actor, you can choose, well, why didn't you do that? I said, well, they didn't offer it to me. You can say no, but you can't say yes unless they're offering it. But people think, you can, <laughs> people why aren't you that. James Bond? I'm like, I've never heard from the James Bond people. Yeah. And uh, so so um, I just thought, well, I'll use the money and more than that, the uh, notoriety that I suddenly have as a result of the success of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I'll establish this publishing house and to help it, I, the first year I'll put out a book, maybe two of my own photographs, things, poems, and then that'll lead them to the other things on the website. And I, I enjoy it. I think it must be like directing, I suppose, in the sense that you're enabling other people, you're you're facilitating their their way of looking at things. I'm, I'm curious as to uh, you do um, Carlito with Brian, who mm-hmm. I love, and you do G.I. Jane. You do the Psycho remake. You do uh, a, a bunch of things. When you arrive, where it's Peter Jackson directed the first film as well, right? Mm-hmm. And when Jackson contacts you, where are you at in your career? When at you're that on point? The th- at that point, where you're on the threshold of doing the biggest movies you've ever made. It's 99. I had just finished making a movie that ended up being called 28 Days. And I had driven, I'd bought a pickup truck and I'd driven across the country with my son, who was 11 at the time. We had this great road trip where he made a map, he drew a map of the United States, and he said, I said, well, let's decide the route rather than going straight across the country to California where we were living at the time. I said, what places should we go? I said, well, how about Graceland? Okay, we made that dot on the map. And then how about where mom's family's from? I go, that would be near Chicago. And then, well, how about, uh, you know, Uncle Michael? Okay, that's Tucson. Okay, and how about this? And how about, you know... So there was this, all these places all over. So we did, and I said, well, this is what the line looks like. It's like this is it. <laughs> the exact, stock market. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Crashing, falling, going up and down, north, south, north, south. But always sort of more or less working westward. And we got back from that. School starts. And um, I was up in Idaho, actually, when I got this phone call. And uh, somebody said, well, we would like you to come and do this movie and I said I just got back with my son and school started and I haven't I don't I haven't read that book I don't know anything about it and your guys are already shooting it was to replace an actor which was also an awkward thing and um, who was deemed to be too young for the role and, um, and I said nah, I don't know my son heard me talking about it and uh, he he said Lord of the Rings he knew what it was from his friends and he'd you know, I'd read The Hobbit years before in high school but I didn't know anything about Lord of the Rings I, I just knew it was this big huge book and he said what's the character and I go oh it's a guy I don't know some guys in the woods and he's got you know some 
little people that he's guiding around, and he goes, that's uh, Strider. I go, yeah, right. And he goes, and he becomes the king. I go, he does? He goes, yeah. He goes, king, yeah. And I go, you should do that. I go, eh, but it's a long, you know, I don't I haven't read it, and they've been rehearsing for months and all their stuff and Elvish and swordplay and whatnot. I don't think it's, it's just sometimes you got to admit you're not the right guy for the job, you know, whatever. Goes, I don't know. So I hung up, but I thought about it, and he was very for it. Maybe I would have done it on my own anyway, but I, I was curious. And also on the phone, they're going, it'd be easy, you know. I mean, yeah, we'll be done by December. And here it's October. I go, oh, that's good, December of next year. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> so, so I said, I eventually said yes, and that's how that, that worked out. It was great. That was a good experience. I really liked that. I was... There's something I was thinking about earlier. That yesterday I did this, uh, this sort of like a public forum, New York Times thing, where you're speaking in front of an audience. You're being asked Time questions. Time talks. Exactly. And um, they asked me a question. I was curious about how you felt about this. They said, do you feel that the movies you do or choose to do or accept, that they need to be about something in terms socially? Do they have to be for the better good or do they have to promote... Uh, yeah, I suppose politically or ideologically, something positive, in your opinion. And I said, I thought about it, I said, no, I don't think that. I, I find movies that are message movies to not be very effective, dramas or comedies or anything. They're just not interesting to me. Movies like Captain Fantastic, rather movies that actually indirectly, without intending to, make you think about communication problems, mm -hmm. which we have many in this country Love. right now. That's great because you're thinking you can apply it. Okay, well, people aren't talking, and if you don't talk and you're isolated in your groups because of ideology, race, whatever, it's a problem. You got to talk. You got to work it out. You have to be flexible. Uh, that's how I like it. But I don't message movies. No, I said. Um, but what I was thinking, and the subject went on to something else. What I would have said if we talked about it further was that. You know, I've I've heard the thing that you've probably heard before. Well, you're an actor. Why don't you keep your mouth right. shut? What do right. you know? Right. I say, well, why doesn't a football player or an actor or a dentist or anybody in any part of the country have a right to say anything? It's supposed to be, you know, if you, you can't expect your politicians to have a civil discourse, informed discourse, to be honest and to communicate better across the aisle or, or with citizens if you don't do it. The example has to come from below, not from, from above. Right. Now, um, it's interesting to me when I think about you is, you know, you're this very chiseled leading man and you've got this warmth and this passion, this beauty to you in the current film, in Captain Fantastic. But in other films, you know, you're this anxietous, tough... History of Violence was a tough movie. Yeah. And um, do you find when you make a film like that, is there some kind of a state you have to enter to play one or the other? Do you have to empty yourself out and get into the beauty zone and the love zone to do Captain Fantastic? And do you need to drink 19 espressos and be in your room watching Scarface on DVD <laughs> when you step off to go shoot people in a movie? No. I mean, I, you know, the other question that's sort of like that, that people say, well, what happens? How do you get rid of the character, you know, when you go home at night or when you're done shooting? <laughs> and... I'm the opposite. How do you get into the character? I mean, my job, I, as I see it, is I got to take on the point of view, uh, understand it, and like it. You know, uh, believe in the point of view of the character I'm playing. And I've played some characters that I wouldn't want to meet on the street, but and that I disagree with their point of view. 
personally, but my job is to get into it. It's kind of the make-believe that you do without even thinking as a child. But as an adult, you have to work at it. And I, I find that endlessly interesting. It's like traveling mentally in your imagination. So, and getting into it. It's fun. Yeah. I mean, I naturally gravitate. I mean, when I played Sigmund Freud in A Dangerous Method, I just read everything that I had read uh, of his and everything I hadn't read and essays and things about him, biographies. And I went to Vienna and I spent some time walking around. I went to places he was meant to have walked to all the time, cafes. I went to, uh, I found books that I knew from research that he had in his library. I found edition. You know, it was just a whole, and maybe none of that is ever seen in the movie. But for me, it makes me feel like I've turned over every stone. And in the process of this this sack that I fill with all these odd things, you never know what they are, even objects that maybe get used in the movie, learning how he's trying to copy his handwriting, all these things that you don't really have to do, but it's my getting ready, it's the fun part. And if I'm playing a dark kind of character, like you said, I take an interest, I might try to meet people like that or go to places they'd go to, and just naturally, not trying to, you couldn't get into a mindset. That doesn't mean that I'm going to go home and... Shoot somebody. Yeah, or punch some pregnant right. woman in the belly or something, you know, just for fun. You know, I'm just... I have actually did that in a movie. <laughs> I kicked <laughs> a pregnant woman in the belly in a movie <laughs> and found out horrible. she was faking. Well, she had a fake foam pad as she was pretending to be pregnant, oh. which is why I kicked her. I knew... I knew she was faking. Oh, my God. It must have been a horrible moment. It was a horrible moment in the movie. I hated doing it. But, <laughs> but my character could see through. He could tell she wasn't really pregnant by the way she was faking in this movie. But anyway, so the last thing I want to say to you is what someone – I admire Cronenberg endlessly. Yeah. I love his films. Yeah. He's such a great, great movie maker. And I love uh, uh, those three films and two in particular. I really – I mean, mm-hmm. just a history of violence was just such, a, such an incredibly – gripping movie yeah. and, and Ed and Hurt and all these really <laughs> and guys that are really just these very people you can't take their eyes the three of you together is like exactly. this uh, Mount Rushmore of <laughs> these really really interesting guys in movies and um, what does he do for you what's something you like about Cronenberg and how does he help you as a director when you work with somebody like him well he's not a director that likes to rehearse but he's very careful and very good at casting um He's open to anybody's ideas. He's he's a sane, mature, sensible director. Um, so we developed a shorthand right away and share kind of, I think, a, a similar sense of humor, similar interest in literature and movies. And we didn't need to talk much about, you know, I, I would do a take and he might say, well, I'm happy. Do you want to do another one? I say, yeah. I mean, I, I'll do a lot of takes. I like it. But if that's another thing about being flexible, some directors, some schedules only allow for a take or two. And uh, what I've quickly realized with him is that, you know, let's say in that character, History of Violence, it's very subtle, some of the transitions, where because he's pretending to be someone else for years so much so that he almost believes it. And so there's almost a sort of yeah, schizophrenic uh, situation he has, and it's not a clean. He doesn't suddenly go from one guy to another. There's some little back and forth. You know, he's on the edge of that, and some of that's very subtle, and it's mostly nonverbal. When he's there's just a look in the eye or just a glance, and just like oh, he's becoming that other character's peeking through that other person, his real self or one of his real selves. 
And, you know, I realized right away, like, I did the thing. I said, well, you know, I wasn't, I didn't, it's not something said. I just, he goes, no, I saw it, I saw it. So you need a director who sees the thing. Knows how to read you. Takes care of it. Knows how to read you. Yeah, and all of, you know, and takes care of it in the editing room. Um, So when he said, let's do Eastern Promises, I thought, sure, it'd be great. I I was doubtful about the third one. He said, Sigmund Freud. I, I, I said, that's a stretch. I don't. I don't think any other director would have said play that, but it's him. So in the end, uh, well, he hasn't steered me wrong so far. I want to finish by saying you've played a lot of great roles as a result of your looks and, you know, masculinity and intensity, not just, you know, your your physical features, but your whole essence. And But to be on film and just exist on film and to respond, and this film really breathes. This movie is beautiful and breathes. The the moment for me, and I'm not even assuming this was there for you, but the moment I thought is that Langella, at one point in the film, two-thirds into the film, where he's just like suggesting, you're crazy. Yeah. You're nuts. And what I loved about you was that you really, what I got from you was you were like, maybe I am. Yeah. You sat there and go, oh, my God, maybe I am crazy. And that was one of the most beautiful moments in the movie, that little interlude. You saying, oh, God, maybe they're right. Yeah. Maybe I am cra- Maybe I'm mentally ill. I, I, love, I love characters that, that take you on that journey, and I love movies that, as an audience member, you're sitting here, and they really make you think, I'm doing it wrong. I mean, as a dad or just as a human being. I, Doubts. I, I've got it all wrong. I'm lazy. I, I don't... I've treated people, I got to call my mom right away or I got to talk to my children or I've got to make up for that thing I did or God, why did I choose this profession? Why, what's wrong with me? I'm so lacking in, in integrity and effort and commitment. And, you know, movies that make you doubt everything, make you wake up and think everything I've done is wrong, even for a moment. Then, of course, you have to hopefully you can get it together and make some adjustments. That's, that's a great service that a movie story can do for you. I watched a screening of Captain Fantastic, and I encourage you to see it too. It's playing in theaters now. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.